The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Perhaps the greatest blessing we can have in life is parents who love us when we are children and raise us the right way. A part of good parenting is making us do things we don't want to do, like doing our homework and eating our vegetables. As adults, most of us recognize that although we might have complained mightily at the time, our parents' coercion on this regard made us better off. Should we similarly empower government to act like parents for us and make us do things that might make us better off in the long run, like say exercising or not using tobacco? The desirability of government paternalism has long been debated by political economists. How does paternalism work out in practice? Joining me on the show today is Dr. Todd Nesbitt, a professor of economics with the Institute for the Study of Political Economy at Ball State University. Dr. Nesbitt earned a PhD in economics at West Virginia University and has taught previously at Penn State Erie, the College of Charleston, and Ohio State University. And he's also a scholar with the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Of relevance for our topic today is he's the editor of a book called For Your Own Good, published by the Mercatus Center, which examines the current evidence on the causes and consequences of government paternalism. Welcome to eConversations, Todd. Thank you for having me today. Well, before we get started, talk about uh, um, you know paternalism. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got onto this topic for research. Yeah, so uh, honestly, like uh, back all the way dating back to my undergraduate years, uh, studying simple uh, excise taxes, uh, I realized how really complex the effects really were. Uh, they seem very simple. It's a tax on, say, a gallon of gasoline or a pack of cigarette, but uh, uh, the effects ends up being quite a bit more complex in terms of how it affects every every consumer's daily lives, and so. Uh, this project has really been 20-something years in the making uh, overall. So I spent much of my, my academic career thus far studying excise taxes. But also, uh, for fun, I actually do some sports econ as well. Uh, maybe that's another topic for another day. But. And, and so I use the term paternalism, but as, from a, as economists think about it, like, well, tell us a little bit of exactly uh, what we mean by paternalism. I mean, we know what parents are. But uh, tell us about what paternalism a as a, a type of public policy would, would involve. Yeah, so uh, it's very much in the same regard that uh, it may be better for us as, as human beings to not smoke, be healthier, uh, maybe get more exercise, as, as you noted earlier, um, maybe not take as many risks with uh, gambling and so forth. Uh, and so is there a way to ha use public policy to nudge or maybe even another term would be shove uh, individuals into making better decisions about their long-term well-being. Uh, because a lot of the behavioral econ research has, has truly indicated that uh, we aren't always acting in our long-term best interest and we tend to make some errors uh, that are pretty, pretty systematic. And, and so maybe we do need that note. And I mean, 
you know, paternalism, uh, there have been paternalistic arguments going back you know, decades in, in uh, a political economy. And one thing to note is that, you know, relative to other reasons people might want to ban certain things because they just oppose them, uh, paternalism, in some way, it has offers at least the possibility that the person who's having something banned for them, the person being coerced, could actually be better off. And that's really important because, at least in theory, they might be consenting to, uh, 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 to th this, these types of roles, right? Yes, I mean, so you think about government in general, government is coercion, right? And uh, you know, we are opting into a, a government that we have here in the United States, uh, to, to at least to some degree. And so it is certainly better for us to be coerced, I would say, uh, to pay taxes to build roads. Like I think we're all better off having a system of roads. And so maybe it's also uh, you know, in our best interest to tax individuals consuming cigarettes, uh, such that the, the broader health of our nation is, is better. Right? And like that's the argument that's there. And certainly some people will respond by consuming fewer cigarettes, and maybe their health is going to be better. Uh, there's also some evidence that suggests maybe not everybody's better off. Mm -hmm. And this is important, you know, because uh, you've alluded to the possibility that people make mistakes. So is it, you know, that there could actually be an issue in terms of people don't go, they, at one level they want to go to the gym, but they don't go to the gym. And, and uh, you know, so there's almost like two selves here. You know, one part of us at some level say like, yeah, I know I want to uh, work out more, but then it's like, well, today's not a very good day because I've got other things to do, or the bed's really comfortable, so why don't I sleep in and skip that workout? And, and so there, there, there's this tension involved here that uh, you know, suggests that we're not making what would be our best decisions for us uh, on our own. And that's sort of important as well because economists generally model people as uh, doing what's in their best interest. So for economists, this is a particularly thorny topic, isn't it? It is. So if you think about like our traditional neoclassical economics, it, it's that we are all rational and when we do act in our long-term best interest. But uh, Richard Thaler um, and Cass Dustin, uh, Thaler just won the Nobel Prize last year uh, for, for his work in behavioral econ. And that's really indicating, a lot of that research is indicating that we do make these systematic errors. And, you know, it, it's, we will tend to... Um, Really, we have a, we, we tend to make errors that that hurt us in the long run. That may actually be good right now. Like it's it's staying in bed longer. Uh, maybe also making uh, when we go to the, if we go to the casino, uh, we tend to make a lot of systematic errors in regards to once we win, we tend to bet bigger. But also once we lose, we bet bigger. And so it's it's interesting just seeing some of the systematic errors that we tend to make. And maybe there's, again, some role for some paternalism to, to nudge us in a different direction. You mentioned the term behavioral economics. And, and so if you would, uh, elaborate on this a little bit, because that's really sort of, uh, I guess, revolutionized or, or really sort of changed uh, some of the, the paternalism debate uh, over the last maybe 20 years or so. So tell us a little about uh, behavioral economics and its contribution here. Yeah, so behavioral econ is, is really this emerger between econ and psychology, right? And so uh, it's looking at, uh, it's kind of challenged this, this oh, well, humans are always rational. Uh, and it's like, okay, well, maybe we're not always rational. And so we're looking at not how we would behave in our optimal way, 
but it's looking at how we actually behave. I think that's the best way that that, that uh, uh, even Richard Thaler would try to describe it is looking at how we actually behave and make these systematic errors. And, it, and again, it, it's more of a behavioral response that we do give in to some of our um, uh, short-term um, you know, biases in a large way. And uh, um, so I would say that, that, that Thaler, in terms of paternalism, um, you know, he's, he would make a difference between, or di a differentiation between a nut and trying to encourage somebody to make a better decision and then using coercion, right? And so a ban would certainly be coercion. Uh, I think a tax would be coercion. Uh, but in terms of making a nudge, placing, if we want people to eat more healthy, placing uh, you know, the healthy foods at eye level and at the beginning of a, uh, a buffet would tend to lead these individuals to consume more of the healthier foods rather than placing them at the end uh, and the, the uh, unhealthy foods at the beginning where they pile up their, their plate or their tray with the unhealthy foods. And so that's more of a nudge. It can be avoided, um, but it makes it easier to behave in, in a, a more uh, healthy way in this, in this particular regard. In the, the behavioral economics literature, really is by, I mean, to, to my mind, the way I look at it is it's given us some concreteness in terms of what people's errors are. And, and it is like you know, scientific in the sense that the psychologists were running these experiments and describing them and like you could follow their directions and run that experiment on your own group of people and see if you know they they they, they again exhibited these same kinds of mistakes and and for some of the well-known uh, uh, biases or, or decision-making problems these experiments have been replicated dozens and dozens of times and with broadly pretty consistent results right that's absolutely true um, and so for a large for, you know, large respect is what behavioral econ is doing is taking like you know, the the experiment that you would see almost in like a chemistry lab or a physics lab and trying to take it into uh, economic right so we're trying to, to control for a lot of uh, the other aspects that, that are in everyday life and then um, putting it in a lab and seeing okay well do people uh, if we change this one aspect, do people continue to make the same error time and time again? And that is something that, that we've seen is, on average, is, is uh, uh, But one thing to note as well is that there, there is always a possibility that, that policymakers might be trying to impose their own preferences on people. There, there could be some differences. There could be people who simply like to gamble and, and, and you know, they like to gamble and other people look at that and say, well, you shouldn't gamble. So there, you know, where we do say it's possible that people want to like gamble less and might want to have, have be nudged to gamble less or uh, exercise more. It's also possible there could be some people trying to impose their preferences on others, right? Yes, and so that's where I think that it's really interesting to, to look at. Um, like in gambling, a lot of people that, that do uh, encourage more taxes on gambling earnings, uh, that is like making a stance that, okay, well, gambling is bad for the individual, but maybe those who are gamble see more value in mm -hmm. actually just the experience of the entertainment of going and, and, and experiencing the thrill. And so I, I, I think it's a risk that, that we are experiencing to try to figure out, okay, well, is this, are the people that are engaging these so-called riskier behaviors is it that they don't understand and they're making errors or is it that they actually just value that
that experience and that product more than other individuals. So let's get into some of the tools of, uh, uh, I guess, paternalism. And as we start with like a ban, so let's explain that. You know, this prohibition uh, of alcohol back in the 1920s and 30s, and then maybe the uh, illegality of drugs today could be thought of as uh, paternalistic policies, right? Absolutely. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you see with both alcohol and with, with drugs, it can create some, some dependency uh, through, that, that we have seen. Um, and it can lead individuals making a lot of really bad decisions, both short run and long run in those, those cases. And so, uh, you know, we could try to go through some educational campaigns or try to convince people of, of their errors, or you could just try to ban it and force people to not consume. Now, ultimately what we saw with prohibition uh, back in the 1920s was, oh, it just went to the underground economy. Mm -hmm. uh, people still consumed it, uh, maybe not as much, but uh, there was still a lot of consumption and it was very more of a risky consumption. And if you look at modern day drugs, uh, opium and cocaine, a lot of these other products were actually legal in the United States at one point. Uh, and once they become banned, they have become really more potent uh, in a way to try to conceal it. And so, uh, again, it's, it's led to more risky behavior of those who continue to consume. And so it may be counteracting some of the original intent of this type of policy. So a ban would be one thing, and you've also mentioned taxes. So let's talk about this. So if you want to use taxes as a way to discourage people from consuming something, how would that work? Yeah, so uh, Mike Lefebvre and I, uh, one of my co-authors that, that's up at the uh, Center for, or Mackinac Center for Public Policy, uh, he and I have coined the term prohibition by price. And <laughs> so it's prohibitive taxation is basically this. And so it's, it, you continue to increase taxes to what we call prohibitive levels. Uh, and what we're seeing is that uh, as you get the, the taxes higher, it'll cause prices to rise. People will consume less. We then have to figure out, okay, buy how much left. Okay. Right? And that's going to depend on what type of product we're talking about. So cigarettes, uh, consumers of cigarettes generally are not very responsive. So they have mm -hmm. a, a pretty low elasticity. So they're not responsive to price changes that much. And so as the price goes up, there will be a slight reduction in consumption, but it's not by very much. And same mm -hmm. thing with alcohol, same thing with gambling. All the so-called sin goods uh, tend to have very, they tend to be very inelastic. And so consumers aren't very responsive. Uh, and so really it, it's, um, it's a really good revenue tool, mm -hmm. uh, raises a lot of revenue for the state or the federal government, but it's not a very good tool in most cases to truly discourage the activity uh, it does a little bit the margin, but again, it, it kind of falls flat. Okay, so that, that's an important point to bring out because we have these like sin taxes. Well, we also know that people generally don't like to pay pay taxes, and so it, it you know I guess there's sort of like a, a question here of why are these taxes really being imposed? Is it to uh, uh, for paternalistic reasons or is it for revenue? Uh, uh, reasons and simply like, well, who's going to defend uh, smoking? And so if smokers have to pay taxes, and especially if you're a non-smoker, you say, oh, well, that's a good way to raise tax, you know, raise tax revenue for government. I don't smoke. I don't ever plan to smoke. And I won't have to pay that tax. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it honestly is a pretty, it's, it's good politics, I would say. Uh, it's not very good public policy, right, mm -hmm. uh, for it to, by any stretch. Uh, and it does actually, once you target a small group of individuals, 
that uh, can be, if we say, okay, well, they're, they're raising the cost of healthcare, like because they're smoking and, and they're using the healthcare system more. And so they should pay more taxes. Um, and so it's hard to, for those individuals to then mobilize and say, okay, well, we shouldn't be paying these taxes. Uh, and then they, I mean, like they may not want to, but it's hard to mobilize politically to make that argument. And again, as you were noting, the, the other, the non-smokers favor this because uh, they don't have to, one, pay the tax. And number two, they are convinced of this alternative uh, argument that, oh, well, they should be paying because they are driving up our cost uh, for public health care. And so uh, it becomes a very good political tool uh, to actually discourage uh, or to, to raise revenue. But notice that the, the one thing that I think is interesting is a politician will make two different comments in the same back to back. They'll say, oh, well, this is a good way to discourage uh, a poor health uh, consumption uh, product. Um, and so discourage uh, consumption of cigarettes, but then also will raise a lot of tax revenue. Notice if you're raising a lot of tax revenue, you're not discouraging the activity. If you're discouraging the activity effectively, you're not gonna be raising a lot of revenue. And so you can't accomplish both of these things at the same time. Another element of the taxes on cigarettes and, and alcohol, particularly, is that these taxes are regressive. And, and that's a term that you know, economists like you and I know, but if you could explain what a regressive tax is and then the evidence on, on like, in effect, who's paying these, these taxes and, and how that fits into bigger questions about the, the fairness of who should be paying for government. Yeah, so this is certainly a major problem, uh, the regressivity of, of most thin taxes. If you think about who the, the consumers typically are of gambling, of cigarettes, of alcohol, a much higher percentage of those who are poor consume those products than of those who are wealthy. And so um, so it's not only that if I pay $100 in taxes, uh, it's a, a small, smaller percentage of my income than if, if I was making $10,000 a year and paid $100 in taxes. So I'd be paying as a wealthier individual, I'm paying a lower percentage that makes it progressive in, its, in itself. But then on top of that, it's also, it's it's not like the poor and the wealthy are consuming the same amount. The poor are consuming a lot more of these, so therefore they're paying even higher taxes on top of it. So even in the absolute dollars they're paying more, obviously it's gonna be a much higher percentage of their income. And so they're, they're uh, basically paying a, a much higher tax rate uh, on the sin good uh, than any of the, the wealthier individuals. And so, Again, this is not something that we normally see as a desirable tax. Mm -hmm. Normally, uh, at, at, at worst, we say, oh, we would like to be proportional. So everybody pays the same percentage of their income. A lot of folks would actually argue it should be progressive. So the wealthier should pay a higher percentage of their income in the form of taxes. Uh, but these sin, sin taxes such that, that we're talking about are certainly the exact opposite. And then, you know, it, it, you mentioned the, you know, how you know, under uh, prohibition people still drank, and, and, but it was, uh, Ill, you know, they drank in, in speakeasies and, and obtained illegal alcohol. There are problems with taxes as well, especially when you raise taxes for these uh, uh, cigarettes to, to, to very high levels. There are problems with uh, smuggling, right? Yeah, so you see the exact same with, with uh, prohibited taxation. You see the exact same problems that we saw under prohibition itself. And so uh, with cigarettes right now, we do see that uh, if you look at New York City, uh, or look, New York City taxes alone. So we have the dollar one federal tax, you have the $4.50 federal state tax, and then another dollar D for the state tax. So you're looking at $6.86 of taxes alone 
before you even pay for the cigarette. Well, I could travel to the next state over and avoid a lot of those taxes uh, if I live in New York City, if I still wanted to consume that particular product. And, and folks are doing that. But then there's also this potential for if I'm entrepreneurial and I'm willing to operate in this underground economy, well, I could actually buy in bulk, legally buy in bulk in Virginia, mm-hmm. um, where the taxes are 30 cents per pack. So you have the 30 cent state tax and the federal tax of dollar one, a dollar thirty one total taxes. So it's a five dollar and thirty five cents or five dollars and fifty five cents difference in tax rate between Virginia and New York City. Uh, that's a pretty big incentive for me to buy in bulk and then cart them illegally up to New York City and sell them illegally uh, in you know to consumers up there who are individuals just trying to uh, stay above, right? Uh, that the consumers are. And so there's a lot of this more organized smuggling that's happening as well. So there's cross-border shopping, which some of which is legal, some of it is depending on the scale of it, some of it is not. Uh, but the, the organized smuggling from state to state or from outside the country into the, into the country, uh, this is very much uh, an illegal activity. And we do see, based on our estimates, uh, that in 2019, the state of New York, about 52% of all consumption of cigarettes within the state originated from outside of that state. That's a huge, over half the cigarette consumed in the state being from outside the state. And this is all just people trying to evade or avoid tax. And, and then there's also issues if, if once you have tax evasion going on, then that becomes a legal issue, and th- those uh, those have consequences as well. Because I mean, uh, I think in 2015, Eric Garner came to national attention. He was uh, killed by New York City police officers when he was unarmed, but he was involved in this cigarette trade, right? He was. So the, the pack of cigarettes that he was selling, what what we call loose, and so that's single single sticks. Uh, a single cigarette at a time. And so if you're in New York City and you you uh, ring out a cigarette, you'd rather not have to buy a, a pack of cigarettes at $14 a pack when if I can just get through the, the day, go to say New Jersey, buy and bulk there and bring it home. And so you just need maybe a couple of sticks to get you through the rest of the day. And so they'll buy individual sticks from people. This is illegal. It's not legal for this to happen. Uh, but uh, and that's really what Eric Gardner was doing. That pack of cigarettes that he was selling from came from Virginia, the same type of thing that I was talking about earlier. And uh, uh, again, this is an illegal activity. And since it's illegal, the police basically are put in a position where I have to confront that. Uh, and so that led to the confrontation uh, and ultimately led to his death. Uh, um, and, and so it's unfortunate. I think that most, most police officers they would say, oh, there's better things for us to spend our time on, but this is an illegal activity. We're being, for, we're being put in a situation where we have to engage in this confrontation. And, and unfortunately, some individuals such as Eric Gardner have lost their life, life as a result. And, and then there's another element with taxation, and, and that's a, some elements of substitution across maybe different types of alcohol or different types of cigarettes. And that's another thing you explore in your research here. So tell us how, and, and that can be particularly relevant because people might end up harming themselves as much, even though they say smoke less or drink less alcohol by volume. Tell us how this uh, might work with the taxes. Yes, yeah, so this is called the Alchin Allen effect. And so, uh, or the quality substitution idea. And so 
Um, let's, I'll just give a simple example first and just use candy bars, right? So let's just look at two quality levels of candy bar. Say a Hershey's bar, it's a decent chocolate, right? Uh, and then a Godiva chocolate bar, a little higher quality chocolate. Let's just say the prices are a dollar and two dollars. So Godiva costs two Hershey's bars. Uh, if we place, because we want to discourage people from consuming unhealthy candy, maybe we place a tax on candy bars and just assume the full price is, is passed on to consumers. And so it's a dollar tax. So now instead of a dollar and two dollars, it's now two dollars and three dollars. Notice that there's still a dollar absolute difference between the two, but the percentage difference is now closed. It's no longer a hundred percent difference. It's only a 50% difference. And so Godiva, instead of being a hundred percent more, it's only 50% more. Fewer people may consume, uh, in this case, uh, candy bars, but of those who continue to consume, there'll be a substitution toward the higher quality. Mm -hmm. And cigarettes, um, the higher quality is flavor, but the flavor doesn't come from nicotine. The nicotine is being unchanged uh, in this regard. The higher, the, the more flavorful cigarettes are coming from the higher tar. And so they tend up substituting toward cigarettes that have more tar in them. But notice it's the tar that does the damage to the lung. And so, they're maybe consuming a slightly, on average, consuming slightly fewer cigarettes, but cigarettes that have higher tar, and behaviorally, since you're consuming fewer cigarettes, you tend uh, to take deeper tote, mm -hmm. uh, because your body naturally is trying to get back to that, that nicotine level. Uh, so you take deeper tokes on every, every cigarette. And so deeper tokes on cigarettes with higher tar, it's possible the health consequences as a result of these taxes is actually to make people worse off than they were before. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's not probably going to be the norm for everybody, but certainly for some, it. Another area we've seen more recently a, a lot of uh, paternalism is is with obesity and, and steps to try to keep people from uh, overeating. We've seen uh, drink uh, sh uh, sugary drink taxes and, and, and uh, a lot of work with like school menus, school lunch menus. Um, from an economic standpoint, you know, what, what, what are the uh, problems that are trying to address here? There's like, I think, information and incentive problems that allegedly might be leading people to be uh, over, to overeat or, or be obese when it, they don't realize that it might be in their interest to not be. Yeah, I think a lot of the issue that, that the argument here is that we're not very informed about what the long-term consequences of our current uh, dietary decisions are. And I think there's some degree, some, some logical argument here that that's probably, uh, probably valid, but at the same time, it's, I don't think these taxes and these bans are really going to address it very well. Uh, cause if you look at the, uh, in a lot of, a lot of, uh, schools, they have banned sugary sodas and, and, uh, uh, uh like other types of canned drink. And what's happened is the students have substituted toward chocolate milk. Chocolate milk has more fat and actually has a lot of sugar in it. And so we've seen that the obesity effect from the switch over to chocolate milk has been worse than if they just would have drank the sugary drinks to begin with. And so it's really difficult to try to manipulate individuals into making decisions in their diet that are in line with whoever the planners really are in that particular case. No, one final th thing I'd like to touch on a little bit here is that once you open it up for politicians to have this power to uh, restrict people's behavior, they, they might not do it only for our good. They might do it uh, to, at the behest of uh, certain producers. And so tell us a little bit about rent seeking, how that uh, is relevant here. 
Yeah. So uh, if if I can, uh, if I'm a on, say if I was one of the producers of cigarettes that are high in, uh, I actually might favor a tax on cigarettes because it it could increase my market share, right? And so I may lobby the government to impose a tax on my own product that applies to all of my competitors as well, if it actually ends up leading to a, high, a better bottom line for, for me in particular. And so uh, some of the motivation for the taxes, not trying to say that this necessarily is the case, but it could be that it's actually leading to, it, it, the support is actually from those in the industry because it benefits some of those uh, politically connected groups. And so we do see that uh, rent thinking can play a, a certainly a large role in determining what products are actually taxed and how they're taxed uh, and at what rate. So we just got a, a few uh, moments left here. Is any uh, any uh, last uh, in summary conclusion points or, or for or takeaway for us here on this? Yeah. So uh, ultimately, these selective taxes uh, and these types of nudges or like I say shoves are, are really dangerous. Uh, I think it's it's very difficult to actually make you know, force people to behave in a certain way. And so if I were to try to, to summarize some of the policy prescriptions that we would suggest that we consider outside of this is certainly reduce the selective taxes. I don't think we're gonna be able to get to a point where we eliminate them, but certainly reduce the use of them and the rate at which we use them. Um, and try to uh, uh, use uh, more broad-based taxes, so taxes on income generally. Um, the sales tax isn't really all that, it, it's a broader base tax than the selective taxes, but. Uh, most states actually exempt a ton of things anyway uh, in the sales tax. So uh, making the sales tax truly broad-based would actually also be a step in the direction, right direction. But also, uh, if we're trying to encourage people to change their behavior in, in uh, better ways, uh, behavioral literature has indicated that, that carrots are better than, than sticks. And so rather than penalizing through taxes uh, the behavior of individual, it may be better to have more modest taxes uh, on, on some items uh, to raise the revenue, to provide some, some carrots for better decisions. So if we want people to stop smoking cigarettes, maybe we should help subsidize uh, patches uh, so that people can, are more likely to actually follow through. Well, thanks very much for coming on and talking about this important issue. And thank you for joining us. Join us again next time for another eConversations. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University.